Welcome to another Chelsea fancast and another one of our 50 Years of Chelsea special shows. And uh, tonight, a very special show. Uh, it doesn't really need much introduction. It's the 1996-97 season. And I, I have to say, probably one of the most emotional Chelsea seasons of all time for all sorts of reasons, uh, good and bad, obviously. And uh, tonight, as always, with me is Mr. Jonathan Kidd. Oh, looking forward to this, Chidge. I'm looking forward also to not saying much and letting Mark get on with it. So, uh, well, always, always. That, that we've we've learned to absolutely love and adore this particular gentleman, Mr. Mark Meehan, who is, of course, the keeper of the knowledge about seasons past. Without without whom, me and J.K. would be royally screwed. Mark. Good- I- Sorry, I was going to say, I love the fact that he he, he he reminds me of stuff. And I can go, oh, yes, I know, remember that, which I think is great as well. Sorry, you were introducing him. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, Mark, uh, as always, a pleasure to see you. And thank you for your homework that you sent in. I haven't marked it yet because I just know it'll be 10 out of 10. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for the kind introduction. Looking forward to tonight, probably one of the most memorable seasons in Chelsea's history. Yeah. I think that's very safe to say that. Now, um, because it's a special show, we've got more than just us three on here tonight. We've also got the delightful legend himself, the Gate 17 legend, Mr. Marco Worrell. How are you, dear boy? Buonasera. Always lovely to see you, mate. You're looking well. And uh, last but by no means least, uh, we've got uh, the other side of the coin because, of course, we're all old. And, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Whereas Martin, Martin Wickham, of course, is just cherubic and young. So he has a different perspective on all of this than we do. But uh, lovely to see you, Martin. I've never been described as cherubic before. I've not even had a shave this well, morning either. So that's quite something. But, yeah, is, I've, I think my, I've just had it quickly looking through the notes. I've just realised I went to be first game this season in the, pre, in the pre-season. So... Yeah, um, and memorable for the obvious reasons too. So I'm looking forward to this as well, mainly listening. Well, I was going to say, now we know uh, it's been um, proven for all to hear that you are in fact a glory hunter if your first season was 96. It was was before the cup wins. Okay, I think we'll let you (laughs) off then. We'll let you off. Um, Right, let's proceed with the show. Um, As you all know, we always start off with uh, a look back at the kit for this year. Now, uh, uh, you know, interestingly, Chelsea have kind of gone quite minimal with their kits we've got the same home kit as we had last season so the cause kit with a little kind of white v in the collar uh, i like this kit i have to say um but we have a new away kit the uh the tangerine and graphite uh, abomination has been uh consigned to the dustbin of chelsea memory i say thank god i know lots of people love it but there you go and instead we have a proper away kit it's a yellow kit um, which we have uh, for just one season. It's obviously got cores on it, but it's yellow with the kind of the light blue and the dark blue trims down the sides. And I have to say, this is one of my favourite, favourite, favourite away kits. And the reason for that is that the first bit of memorabilia I ever got was a signed Gianfranco Zola shirt and it was on this very shirt. And it is my prized possession. I mean, even even more than the Peter Osgood shirt that I've got signed, I have to say. But still uh, have it, you still have the I, yellow one? I, I, I could show you at half time. Okay, because it's be bloody lovely. huge. I haven't actually hung it up yet. That's my job for this week, funny enough, because I've got the week off. Can I be critical of the, uh, of the, of the colours? Of course you can. Thank you. I, I didn't understand why we had light blue. 
I like a bit of proper blue, you know, I like a bit of, I mean, there was an interesting picture on um, Twitter today showing a, um, a Chelsea, Chelsea colours from the uh, 30s and they were almost purple, almost there was a royal purple to them. And I like that. And I like that about our blues. But in this instance, I don't know at um, Umbro who made the decision to put a light blue on it. What would have been wrong with putting proper blue on it just for the whole thing? But I'm, I'm, I'm clutching at straws here because it's um, it, it, it was such a relief after the uh, the uh, the orange and graphite, <laughs> which, as you say, is actually has now become rather appealing with hindsight. Well, just, I was just, also going to say the, the first and only thing that JK and I have ever agreed on in 10 years of doing this podcast. So well done. Can I make a comment about refs as well while I'm here? No. Can you make it later? We'll do the no, kids no, it's first. To do with colours. To do with colours. All right. All right. Ah, you see, you didn't know. Is that they were wearing, um, they had those strange white stripes on their outfits and then occasionally wore red and black. I don't know who made this decision for them, but perhaps it was something to do with the Premier League. So uh, they tended to ref in either black and white stripes or red and red and black stripes. Ah, well spotted, well spotted. Now, I know Martin had his hand up. Martin, what did you want to say? I thought that away kit was there for two seasons, but with a sponsor change. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I thought so. I, I, I'm also not a fan of the light blue going up the middle either, but it's associated with a particular moment, so it's gone down as a popular kit probably as a result. When they re-release it, as they surely would, they probably need to have like little red splatters down there because, of course, we will ref this later, but the moment I think you're referring to is when Zola gave Wimbledon twisted blood. Yes, indeed, indeed. and sent Dean Blackwell halfway down the... um halfway towards um, Islington. Indeed he did. Right, um... Uh, whilst we're talking to kits, of course, I mean, as you as you probably know by now, if you've been listening to a few of these, but we've got a, a partnership or a deal going with uh, the lovely three retro dot com who uh, who sell lots of very. I mean, they've got a brilliant range of, uh, you know, former Chelsea kits. In fact, so brilliant that a lot of them are already sold out, but uh, they do. I'm sure they'll get more in. Um, anyway, in honour of our 50 years of Chelsea series, they've, uh, uh, you know, basically are offering 10 percent off. When you use the three retro ten code, and if you order over fifty quid of merch, you get free UK delivery. Uh, you have to use our link, and that is uh, going to be posted on our when I put the show up and promote it on Twitter and Facebook. The link will be there. So if you want to buy one, you can, I think you can buy this one. I can't remember. I'm going to look for the for a week or so. But uh, there are plenty of shirts there. Uh, I think they got the cause, the blue cause one there. So anyway, have a look. Go and buy one. You won't regret it. Um, now, um, of course, we always start uh, after the after the kits with a roundup, really, of who who was in and out. I'll just uh, go through very quickly and tell you who came in and who went out. Uh, the first, of course, I mean, this is just for me one of the the best moments of supporting Chelsea ever. Shortly followed in October by another one, but we'll get to that later. But uh, on the twenty fourth of May, Gianluca Vialli was transferred from Juventus, where he just won the Champions League or the European Cup, if you prefer, for free. Nada, zip, nothing. Uh, Frank Leboeuf came in on the 1st of July from Strasbourg for £2.5 million. Uh, Roberto Di Matteo came from Lazio for £4.9 million uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the same day, I believe. And uh, we had a couple of promotions from the youth, Joe Sheeran and John Harley. Uh, out went dear old Nigel Spackman, uh, after two fabulous spells at the club. Now, of course, as you know, last week we did a, a, a monster interview with Spackers, which, I mean, even though I say it myself, I think it's one of the best interviews we've ever done on the Fancast, and we've done a lot. 
Uh, Spackers was brilliant. If you haven't heard it yet, you must go and listen. He talks about all sorts of things. Hod or Hullet, also the great 80 side, 83, 84, 85, 86, all of that. So uh, go and check that out. Anyway, Spackers finally called it a day uh, at the end of last season. Uh, Paul Furlong was transferred to Birmingham for 1.5 million, and Anthony Barnes was transferred to Charlton for 165 grand. So uh, I think we should address uh, Mr. Viali first. Um, I'm going to um, break with the tradition uh, and not ask Mark first because we have somebody with uh, Italian heritage in the house. And, I, and I, I sadly, sadly didn't know Marco in 1996. I wish I had, but I didn't. And I would have loved to have been with Marco the day that we signed Gianluca Viali to see what, what, what his face was like, see how ecstatic he was. So, Marco, how did it feel signing Luca and, and Robbie Di, Di Matteo for that matter? Meraviglia fucking ozo, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was brilliant. I, 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 that whole um, triumvirate that ended up turning up at Chelsea, I mean, for anybody that was sort of Italian or Anglo-Italian or... Um, had it had an interest in Chelsea, you know that that whole Italian um, liaison that that kind of really got going that season, uh, and you know it's ne- never really it's never really gone away from there. So so many people have got an affinity through ch- for Chelsea through that um, in Italy. Uh, it's extraordinary, really. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, not not only a player of Viali's calibre, you know, it just kind of endorsed the the whole Rude Hullet thing, um, and and that bridge to Hoddle, and you know, the whole catalyst for for, for change. And you just got a real sense that something was going to happen, and the fact that there was an Italian angle to it made it all the more exciting for me at yeah. the time. Absolutely. So I was still quite young then. Yeah. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Right. Uh, Mark, I know you've got a few stories about it, so I'd, I'd love you to regale us with them, and I'll, I'll talk to Martin and, and JK about what they thought about our summer signings. No, I'd agree with Marco. Such a buzz signing Viali, and also a Champions League winner as well. You know, his final you know game for Juventus was beating Ajax in the Champions League final. So, so it seems ironic now we signed a Champions League winner to play for Chelsea and the, bu- the buzz around that. But I think a lot of credit has to go to Colin Hutchinson. You know, bless him. You know, Mrs. Hutchinson was very sympathetic. You know, he actually broke one of his family holidays in Cyprus at the time to fly to Italy to get, to get Viali. And he must have run up a lot of air miles that year because he said it earlier, he signed Le Berth and then he flew to Rome the same day to sign Di Matteo, just absolutely incredible. But they, they weren't the only people they signed. Hullet himself actually said the most important signing of that summer was the former Olympic 200-meter finalist, Addy Maffey. Um, Hullet signed him as a fitness coach. And we talked about it last week, obviously, when JK shared his experience of his hamstring injury. <laughs> uh, we actually had four players out the previous season with hamstring injuries. So and Matthew himself said when he sort of joined Chelsea, you, you shouldn't pull your hamstrings from straight line sprinting as a professional footballer unless your hamstrings are in a bad way or you're doing something wrong. So Matthew was very much brought in to make the players fitter. Indeed. Um, JK, uh, 
I'll ask you you first, and then Martin. I mean, how excited were you? Because I mean, you know, these yeah. were these were the two biggest signings other than Rude. I think we'd ever really had, aren't they? I thought I couldn't believe it, and I thought there must have been something wrong with him, and I was convinced that they'd bought somebody whose knees had gone or something, or 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 was going to be suffering from some. Um, he would never get in the side. And I was very dubious about the whole experience at the very beginning, which uh, I wasn't being pessimistic. I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get how we got um, a, 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 a Champions League winner in the side. And um, and I just thought he was he was there to make up the numbers and that we'd carry on with Spencer. And uh, <laughs> what a fool I was. <laughs> because I just, I don't know, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I, I was I was bemused. Um, but then uh, when you saw them all playing together, and Dim- I thought Dimitri was a fabulous player, absolutely fabulous. And Leboeuf, we'll get onto that, started wonderfully, and he was sort of a hero for a period. Um, but, uh, you know, when it became apparent that we had um, a quite phenomenal striking pair of Hughes and Viali, who just wanted to get the ball into the net as soon as possible, which is something, actually, that the, the, uh, the current uh, um, 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 situation could, could do with... Um, uh, you know, when in doubt, just bash it as hard as you possibly can uh, with great results. So uh, as the season went on, it was uh, particularly the first game of the season was absolutely phenomenal. The buzz was abs- the home game, I should say, was absolutely remarkable. But yeah, it was once I'd established that it wasn't he hadn't come along for a free ride and he hadn't broken anything. I was uh, I was ecstatic about it. So uh I, I, well, so was I. I mean, Martin. I mean, you were you're obviously. I mean, how old were you in '96? Oh God, uh, I was about fucking old. I'm getting old. I can't fucking add up. It's <laughs> <laughs> about eleven or twelve. Jesus. Oh uh, yeah, it's around eleven or twelve at the time. Yeah. That's certainly at the start of the season. And for the years before that, we didn't have Sky TV in the house. So the only football we saw was on Channel 4 ah. on a Sunday afternoon. Golazzo! Golazzo, Golazio, whatever it was meant to be. And so I'm not going to say I was an Italian football expert, because I clearly fucking wasn't, but the ball guy who played for Juventus alongside Roberto Baggio, I knew who he was. It's like, bloody hell, he's coming to Chelsea. That's, that's brilliant. Um, there was a lot of stuff in the paper about him. always oh, only here for a free payday and all that. But, you know, he's, he put the work in. Um, Divertel I knew a little bit about, but not not what he could do and um yeah because i've just my recollection of that summer it was after euro 96 there was a lot more buzz about football in general and there was a shitload of high profile signings in the premiership so apart from us there was like shearer breaking the transfer record ravenelli left that juventus side and went to middlesbrough so there was a lot of activity and i think certainly in terms of outlay you could look at the prices we paid in comparison to others we didn't do too badly well, in, indeed. I mean, I think it was it was a really, you know, almost visionary couple of signs. I mean, I think the thing that really interested me, I mean, I was so excited that Viali had come. I mean, like like a lot of us, I'd, I'd watched the, the Channel 4 Italian Serie A coverage. And I, and I remembered I remembered Luca with his curly hair and used to think what a fantastic striker he was. Uh, Robbie Di Matteo, I didn't I didn't know too much about. But I think the really interesting thing about that was that you know, Robbie signed for us when he was a current uh, international player for Italy. And in those days, it was really unheard of for, you know, Italian international players to play outside of Serie A. I mean, you've got to bear in mind, uh, you know, at the time, for about the last 10 years, Serie A had been, 
the Premier League of European football. All the best stars went there. I mean, you had Hullet, Van Basten, Rijkaard playing for uh, AC Milan not that long before. You know, so they were the they were the mutts nuts. They really were. So to get a current international uh, Italian international over to Chelsea was was I think a real coup, and it kind of made the beginning of this season somewhat exciting to say the very least. So there we go. So let's get... Oh, pre-season, Mark. I mean, we we know you like a bit of pre-season. I know you've got a few funny stories from that. But if I, shall I run through who we played? And then you can give us your stories. But we beat, oh. we beat the mighty Kingstonian 7-0. We lost to Exeter 2-1. We beat Plymouth Argyle 3-0. We beat Swindon 2-0 and a benefit for the family of Kevin Morris, which Mark will no doubt enlighten us about. We beat Wolves 1-0 and a benefit for Andy Thompson. Notts Forest on penalties in the Umbro Trophy semi-final. Ajax 2-0 in the Umbro, Umbro Trophy final. And Sampdoria in a friendly 2-1. And we lost to PSV 2-3 in a benefit for Stevie Clark. Mark? Uh, we'll start with Kingstonians. Because obviously, as we've said, huge buzz with our signing. So speculation was rife that Di Matteo and Viali would make their debut at Kingstonian. So a full house, but the only thing they saw was the two of them on the pitch at half time. So the speculation then moved on the Monday down to St. James's Park, the one in Exeter, rather than the one in Newcastle. Uh, so you've you got to do it, haven't you? You've got, you got to take a, a, a day off work. So myself and Mr. Beard, um, known to a few people in this parish, uh, we got the two o'clock Rattler out of Paddington down to the West Country. A certainly high-profile Chelsea supporter living in that part of the world then uh, had sorted us out match tickets at very short notice. Um, we actually stayed in a bed and breakfast, true story this, uh, called Highbury. And it was run by an exiled gooner. Um, we did try and find a hotel called Stamford Bridge, um, but <laughs> no avail. So we've got these tickets, you know, and it's like the exec club of Exeter. It was like £25, and they were seats in the director's box, and a, a bit of a buffet before the game. Uh, but in the hospitality of Exeter, it was probably no bigger than probably where you're doing the, the fan cast from, Chidge. Uh, we're all cr- um, crammed in there, and the first team are in there as well. So an opportunity to meet the first team, meet the new signings, um, meet Viali, meet, meet Di, Di Matteo. Um, and obviously, Viali actually didn't play, but we got permission from Exeter, and we did this last week mention on the show, to welcome Hullet, we did a Hullet flag down in Torquay. So we had had a flag specially made. We're going to use it for the first game, but we, we did it for this game instead. Now, Marco's Italian be far better than mine, but I think if you pronounce it, it's like, welcome to Chelsea's is Benvenuti are Chelsea. And then we said Forza Azzurri on the flag. And we got Hullet to present the flag. Now, Hullet was buzzing. Hullet thought this was a Chelsea tradition. <laughs> that each time a new signing came, he got a flag. Because um, we'd done it for Dimitri Karin, we'd done it for Viali, I've done it for Hullet, and now, now we've done it for Viali. So he was really sort of posit- positive about it. So the game itself, as I said, we're sitting in the director's box behind Ken and Susanna. We're 1-0 up at half time. But also in the stand beside us was Nigel Mansell uh, and Yuri, Mr. Spoonbender himself, Geller. Um, and at half time, Geller goes down onto the pitch. And he asked all the Exeter fans in the ground to focus their minds yeah, and close their eyes. And if they focus strong enough, Exeter will beat Chelsea in the second half. 
Now, we thought that was a load of old bollocks. <laughs> well, guess what? Exeter got two late goals <laughs> and they beat Chelsea in the second half. I mean, Mark, Mark, quick, quick interjection as you mentioned that. Because, I mean, we kind of mentioned it towards the end of last week, didn't we? Of course, the infamous, famous, whatever you want to call it, Euro 96 happened just after the season end and therefore just, just before this was going on. Of course, Yuri Geller claims the credit for McAllister missing the penalty against Scotland, doesn't he? Yep, and he was claiming the credit for Exeter beating Chelsea in the executive bar afterwards when we adjourned there. To, so he was only pre-season friendly. So we just retired to the bar at Exeter to contemplate the season ahead. And we were bestowed by the sight of a well-known Chelsea supporter who rather indulged his hero-worshipping of Rude Hullet a bit too much and accidentally shinned the great man's leg against a coffee table in the executive lounge. And Mr. Hullet had to sort of like walk off limping in pain. And very soon after, he flew to Belgium for a knee operation. They are no, clearly no way connected. Like, so this is what you said the other day, Mark, about that this was the reason why he didn't play very much at the beginning of the season. I couldn't possibly comment, JK. <laughs> <laughs> Blimey. That's that's the other thing I'd say about preseason as well. You, you mentioned um, um, the Nottingham Forest um, Ajax um, Umbro trophy and you mentioned oh. 96. The interesting thing was we were critical of Carring the other week for he didn't save a single penalty in the Millwall FA Cup game. And in the semi final of the Umbro trophy, Chelsea beat Nottingham Forest 4 2 on penalties. Carring saved two penalties and fresh from Euro 96. <laughs> Whose penalty did he save? Stuart Pearce. Ah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, you you got some other stuff down here, Mark, that I, I wasn't aware of, which was uh, the uh, the Chelsea Village. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, we had some feedback on Twitter and people were very interested in hearing about this kind of stuff. So, you know, that put me back in my place. But... Uh, we, we we were fresh from the furore about you know Matthew Harding and his shareholdings and 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 the and they were you know at the time they were you know they'd knocked the shed well the the, temp, the shed had gone a few seasons before but the temporary seating went this season, which means they started building the new the new shed end and of course Chelsea Village which is what lay behind it and there was still kerfuffle about that wasn't there? There there was still kerfuffle about that and I think. One of the things that we said on last week's show is Hoddle had got the pitch lengthened. You know, so that, that had an impact on, on the Chelsea Village development. But what we also had revealed, and I said it on last week's show, of who actually were the people behind Chelsea Village. So we finally get to know the names of the people. Now, these are the people, in effect, own Chelsea Football Club. Uh, Ken said that he accounted for 100 million of the 102 million shares. These are the shareholders. The main company that had two-thirds of Chelsea Village was a company called Rysaf Limited, and the main directors of Rysaf Limited were Dr. Fritz Schumacher, Hans Rudolf Gier, Conrad Amishon, and Mrs. Evelyn Reinhardt. Now we may, we may as well sort of like you know throw in Sydney Rough Diamond, you know Sid Boggle and Vic Flange. Because they actually sound like carry-on film characters. <laughs> all, all those fake names they put through on GBU, GB News at the start of it when they forgot to, you know, filter out the obscene names. Were these were these like just signatories 
for the or something like that was these were the sort of directors of Rysaf Limited and very early in the season Rysaf sold 30% of their shares as well and the justification given was it was just demonstrating that Ken Bates had actually nothing to do with these shareholders so that's why they were selling their shares because shareholders can but at the same time Ken had already said that he spoke for 100 million of the 102 million shareholders so I think quite a few people were confused, to say the least, but they were very much looking for 30 million to redevelop the remaining part of the site and the Chelsea Village development. So they want to try and raise money to do so. So perhaps selling of those shares, getting new shareholders in, new investors might have been part of the motivation. I think the only other thing to mention about pre-season, uh, and if we'd had sort of like Twitter and the nonsense we've seen over the last few days, is it announced Lukaku, is it announced Haaland? You know what? I'd laugh my socks off if we end up buying Harry Kane and they've all got it wrong. Um, <laughs> Neil Ruddock. <He> was... <laughs> no, we can't sign Ruddock, mate. I know we need a central defender, but well, you know I hate him. About Ruddock last week when I said I liked him, Chidge, because I didn't think he was a bad player at this stage. You know, the only thing I'd like to do with Ruddock is go out for a beer drinking session with him. That's yeah, I think well, we're it. thinking post Ruddock rather than when he was playing for Liverpool. He wasn't bad when he was playing for Liverpool. This, he was playing for Liverpool at the time. And if the people in the know now were back there then with their car, their, their cameras and their spies at Stamford Bridge, hey. Ruddock, Ruddock was spotted at Stamford Bridge during the summer. So there'd be at least one person in the know, modern day, tweeting that, oh, Neil Ruddock is coming to join Chelsea. We could relax. We didn't have to panic. We could still go for a drink with him. He was only there to make a schools commercial. Well, there. Can I, can, yeah, sorry, I, JK. Yeah, go, go on, mate. I wanted to ask, who paid for all these players? At this point, um, there was still Harding money available. Harding had made money available for transfers. And I think at one point, when they were trying to get one of the deals over the line, which is probably the LeBerth deal or the Di Matteo deal, he did get a request to provide more money. So Harding was still, he may not have paid all of the transfers, but he did make some of the money available for those transfers. Because originally it was a loan from Harding, wasn't it? And then he said that when he'd made up with, with Ken, he said he would give the money um, f- that w- had originally been a loan to the club for, for the for which stand, for the for the North stand. Yeah, there, there, there was two bits of money. I think the three he made available, there was a 5 million loan for the North stand. Yeah. There was the 16.5 million he used to buy the freehold, but he also made a separate pot of money when they reconciled available for transfers. And as I said on last week's show, he was then chairman of the transfer committee. And I think it was that pot of money they used to pay towards some of those transfers in the summer. Right. And I don't know whether there was any of that money left, and we'll talk about it later, with his tra- tragic passing away, that might have contributed towards his dollar transfer as well. Mm. Right, let's get into the season proper, as they say. And, um, you know, in August, our first three games were Saints away, Borough at home and Coventry at home. And I'm pleased to report that, unusually for Chelsea, we had a a good start. We were unbeaten after those three. It was a bit disappointing to get a nil-nil at Southampton away. And it was the live match on Sky, of course, because, uh, you know, we'd hit the news with the uh, Luca and Demetteo and Frank LeBeuf uh, signings, all of whom made their debuts in that game. Uh, but we got our first win against Borough at home um, with a Di Matteo goal on 86 minutes. In truth, we battered them, but uh, it took all of that time to, to get the opening goal. And it was a 25-yard sh- shot. And the thing that I always love about that was the celebration 
where Robbie kind of just lies down and puts his arm up in the air and then they all join in with him, don't they, JK? Utterly iconic picture. Yeah. Went the rounds and it was it's so representative of the, mm -hmm. the spirit in the side and the excellence of it. And they then attempted to duplicate it again. And then we'll discover that Blackpool duplicated it when they scored against us. Well, yeah. In, in the Coca-Cola I was Cup. going to mention that. I, I won't but also, I have to say, one of the, there are certain pictures I, I was beating City last year of seeing Hullet with his arm around Dewberry. There are certain pictures that have just absolutely stayed in my, not only my memory, they've been used iconically for these seasons. And there's another one of Doob scoring with a header and just putting his fist up in the air, which has just stayed all the time. But this particular one, with obviously they've rehearsed it, with uh, um, Erlen Jonsson coming in last because he'd come from further away, just to, on the end. <laughs> was actually beautifully staged and it's a fantastic photograph we and, did uh, yeah it, it is i totally agree and there's so many iconic moments from this season but that's a that's a peach uh we beat coventry 2-0 at home in the next match uh frank leberf got off the mark for us with a, a header on 29 minutes and luca viali smashed one in on 74 um i think the thing that really stuck out already and how quickly i mean obviously viali being brilliant di matteo being brilliant but I mean, Marco, how how good was Frank LeBeouf in those opening games? I mean, you know, he could pass, he marshaled the defence. He, he was brilliant, wasn't he? He was here, there, and we're every... not allowed to swear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think he kind of became a cult hero um, because he, I mean, obviously he was a high-profile player, but he, he wasn't quite in the same um, league in terms of that um, publicity side of things uh, as as the Italian signing. So he kind of established himself as a bit of a cult hero before Viali and Di Matteo, um, just purely because it, he was just a great competitor. Um, and you could tell it really meant a lot to him as well. And, and he looked the bollocks as well. Yeah. I think his passing ability was something as well that we weren't used to. I mean, all right, David Lee was pretty good, but Jonsson was okay. But to have somebody who was absolutely so pinpoint in his, his 50 to 40 to 50 yard passing was uh, was remarkable, just putting people in and also getting into the penalty area when you think, how's he got up there? What's he doing there? And getting a shot in or scoring. That always used to completely befuddle, discombobulate and amaze me the fact that Frank would turn up in the centre forwards position. It was like, what? What are you doing there, mate? And he'd score. He normally get a, a shot off and he would, or a header in that would 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 set a goal up, or he'd score. Yeah. It wasn't just he was hanging about. He was, you know, he was on the end of stuff. I know. Terrific, terrific, terrific player. It was amazing, wasn't it? Because I mean, it, you can you can really see that this year Hullet's putting his stamp on it. He's got. He, he, I mean, obviously, as I said, the the, the quality in in Viali and and. Di Matteo, obviously, but we've got we've now got a central defender who can play football, and as J J.K. was saying, he could really bring the ball out from the back, and you can tell that this is what you know. Hullet wanted to play decent football, pass possession, quick movement, quick transition. I think the uh, the youth like to say now, don't they? So there we go. Right, September begins with an absolute mental game, to say the least. Um, it's Arsenal away. It, it was three all. I mean, we started the scoring with Leboeuf, who got a penalty after six minutes. Uh, Viali made it thirty uh, two nil after thirty minutes. Then Merson scored a really good goal on forty four. The awful Bob, also known as Martin Keown, got a header on sixty four. 
Then Wright uh, made it 3-2 with 77 minutes gone. And then dear old Dennis Wise and acres of space down the left. Wallops one in on 90 minutes to equalise. And a well-deserved draw. We certainly didn't deserve to lose that game. Um, which of you lovely people was at this game? Mark, you put your hand up first. And JK. So, uh, I mean, Arsenal in those days used to, you know, quite often beat us. I, I always used to get very fed up with the fact that Arsenal would beat us a lot. And remember, they got Dennis Bergkamp in their side. This is a good Arsenal side that would go on and win the title and the double, I think, uh, quite soon after this. So I felt really very chuffed that we'd come away not being beaten by that lot. But what was it like there? It, it, it was a bit of mixed emotions. I, I, I said at the time, the first 45 minutes was probably the best 45 minutes you know, Chelsea had played in many a year away from home. They, they were that good in that first 40 minutes before Merton Pauls won back. Uh, 2 0 could have been three, could have been four. And then it was just frustrating yeah, that Arsenal came back and made it 3 2. Uh, and then just a sheer delight, there's nothing better than a last minute goal and a last minute equaliser. And I think the young people would probably describe it as ends falling, <laughs> you know, in terms of the clock end, because we had the corner of the clock end and, and part of the seats, you know, at Arsenal then. And the Chelsea end went absolutely mad at the end. And De- Dennis scoring, I think Spenny came on. I think Spenny made the chance for Dennis. But we, it, was, it was a game, a bit of a game in two goals, absolutely brilliant in the first. We let Arsenal back in in the second, and then we came back strongly at the end to get an absolutely deserved point. You know, really good performance by Chelsea. And I think the other annoying thing about Bob is when Bob gets the equaliser for Arsenal, yeah, he does celebrate in front of the Chelsea fans as well. So we could have used Nigel Spackman again to give him a slap. Yeah, well, I think any match really with Keown playing is an excuse to give him a slap. JK? Um, I, I was gutted because we'd been two up, you know, and I thought we were going to win it easily. It was the usual thing. In fact, I think this was a problem we had for the whole of the season was this inability to hang on to leads. Um, I don't mean L-E-E-D-S. I mean L-E-A-D-S. And, uh, but no, it was great to score in the last minute. But, I, you know, I just we should have won it. Um, so I'm, uh, I, I, was, uh, um, I was really pleased that we, we got a, a draw there, but we should have won it, um, I remember at the time. But, yeah, um, um, interesting to see Burley playing, who... Uh, had a very good season um, uh, and yet didn't make into the cup final side. And also I, I got very confused as to why Minto wasn't playing um, some of these games um, because uh, he picked Myers, um, Hullet, and uh, obviously Hullet wasn't playing because he was still injured. And I didn't realise that. I just thought, oh, is he a manager who doesn't want to play himself? <laughs> so I think we were doing very well considering the, the best player that we'd had the season before. The, the As I say, the greatest player I've ever seen play for Chelsea wasn't actually contributing anything. Well, that, because that's because uh, a certain person who can't be named had done his knee, hadn't he? Indeed, absolutely. Knee capped him Exeter. It would be interesting to have seen what would have happened in these games if Hullet had been playing as well, because uh, I think it would have made them absolutely formidable. Mm. But yeah, as slapped, it was, as he'd have been the one who slapped Bob. <laughs> yeah, he would have done. So I didn't. I, defensively, I still wasn't. I didn't. We, we had Karin in goal, and I was really dubious about him all all his career at Chelsea because he would be so chalk and cheese. You know, one minute he'd be saving excellently, and then he he wouldn't come out. Major problem was he never came out for the ball for crosses when he should have done. I just felt he was glued to the line. And in this instance, uh, um, you know, that we're going to see the goalkeeping. Uh, scenario un- unfold as the season goes on. We are indeed. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned Corrin because the next match is Wednesday, uh, Sheffield Wednesday away, which we also won. Uh, Craig Burley and the uh, and Andy Myers, who Jonathan's just 
slagged off, scored uh, the winner. No, no, he's scored a great goal. <laughs> I'm only joking. Goal this. You're being unfair. I'm, joking. I'm just asking why he's left back instead of Minto. I didn't slag him off. I'm just joking, mate. Uh, anyway, Myers scored and it was 2-0 after 83. Uh, and we went second, actually, uh, as a result of that, because Wednesday were actually top at the time. They were unbeaten going into this match. But, JK, the, the key thing here was that Karim was stretched off in this yeah. match. So that would have uh, solved the goalkeeping problem for a few matches. <laughs> well, if... I'm not sure it did because uh, Kevin Hitchcock was um, had other other strengths, but at the same time wasn't really... I don't think the goalkeepers were ever... Uh, at the same level as the people that we were bringing in. Well, I, I agree with you. You say that, and then we then had Villa at home, uh, where the odious Andy Townsend, also known as Big Nose, uh, opened the scoring with a free kick on 81 minutes, and Frank LeBeouf equalised on 45. But Hitchcock, uh, I thought, kept us in the game that day. Marco, were you at that game? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Sticks in the memory. <laughs> I, I, I have to say that um, you heard of the first summer of love, and then there was the second summer of love. Well, the 1996-97 season came off the back of what was for me and my mates the third summer of love, and we used to take all kinds of mind-altering substances <laughs> at these games uh, during the course of this season. Marco, I have huge sympathies with you here because, you know, in the first, sorry, the second summer of love, late 80s, when I popped along to a few games, uh, my problem, and people ask me why I don't remember anything from them. And I mean, I had a period in my life which I actually refer to as my Keith Richards years because I remember nothing due to the <laughs> huge amounts of drugs and alcohol I consumed. So. Uh, uh, me, you, you are simpatico, my friend. Uh, Mark was nodding away uh, whilst I was chuntering on about Villa and Karin. So, Mark, do you remember it? I do, I do. Uh, uh, and again, also, it wasn't just the Villa game. I thought um, Hitchcock had a good game up at uh, Sheffield Wednesday when he came on and replaced you know, Karin because Sheffield Wednesday threw the bus at us as well. You know, So, again, I think the only criticism... I, I was a fan of Kevin Hitchcock. I think the only thing I would say... He, he probably just wasn't tall enough to be sort of like a, a really strong, you know, first team choice goalkeeper. But I think more often than not, when Hitchcock played, I don't think he ever let us down. I, I, you know, he was a good shot stopper. And in both those games, he, he made a difference. Uh, the other thing is I was going to mention the Blackpool game because it was the next game. Mm. Yeah, I was too young to go to Blackpool in 1976. So we had to do a, a jolly boys outing up to Blackpool for this one. Uh, and it was, oh, it was great, you know, great day trip up to Blackpool, up, up to, you know, uh, up and met up with a guy you might know, Malcolm Carl in the Chelsea Northwest. So we had the day in Blackpool at the Chelsea Northwest. Spent the day drinking in Yates' Wine Lodge in Blackpool. And I'd never been to Blackpool. And I suddenly discovered Blackpool seems to have a lot of Scottish people that seem to live there permanently. They just come down over the border and never, never went back. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, Marco uh, famously made his debut at Blackpool for another reason in 1976. <laughs> As for those those that know, know, right, Marco? Very true. <laughs> Place very dear in my heart. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thing is, Marco, I can never remember with you that whether whether it's actually in one of your books or it's just a story you've told me over the years. But... I can't remember. I think, <laughs> I think it probably has made it into print. <laughs> I, I think, think Marco. Did... I think you did it in CSU UK once. I think you wrote about it in there. Oh, was it in there? Yeah, yeah. Def it's definitely been written about. 
There you go. So you'll you'll just have to see Marco at the stall and ask him very nicely if he'll tell you the story about Blackpool in 76. And I can assure you he will say nothing unless you brought him a hot chocolate. So there you go. Um, right, so uh, that moves us into uh, our worst defeat of the season, actually. We go up to Anfield and we get absolutely hammered. Um, probably remembered best for uh, uh, Berger, uh, Patrick Berger's two goals. Um of course, he was. I think he was making his debut for them, wasn't he, Mark? He, well, I think he'd come on as a sub, I think, during the week. So this was his full debut. I was up at Anfield, and I think we were lucky you know, to get away with five against us. They absolutely tonked us that day. Uh, and the other, other thing, apart from Berger virtually beating us single-handedly, there's a brilliant Andy Myers own goal. You know, it, it's an own goal. I know there'll be one later in the season from Frank. Frank would have been proud of that one. Yeah, it's it's almost like yeah, he just sort of like does a little cheeky little header sort of like and heads it into the corner of the goal and Hitchcock probably thinking, what are you doing there? <laughs> yeah, we were absolutely spanked that day, and again we get a late penalty. Yeah, Anfield a penalty at Anfield, but we were five 0 down by then, so it really didn't matter. Even though Lebeau put it away well, in indeed. Um, right now back to the old Coca Cola Cup. Uh, we're four one up against Blackpool, so. As of course you can all predict, it was uh, should have been plain sailing. Was it hell? Uh, we managed to lose three-one. Um, not helped by uh, Mr. Ellis, who scored on thirty-five minutes, and then Quinn scored on forty-six. So we were three-nil down. Uh, so therefore equal on aggregate. Uh, and it wasn't until Johnny Spencer uh, scored on the sixty-third minute that you know sense broke out really. Um, the interesting thing about, I mean, it was terrible defending. I think it has to be said. I'm sure one of the boys will tell you all about it in a minute when I ask them. But uh, the interesting thing about this for me was that Frode Grodas, the Norwegian keeper who was on loan at the time, uh, made his debut in that match. So didn't inspire too much confidence. But I do think it was more more the fault of the people in front of him. And as Jonathan said a minute ago, uh, Blackpool had the temerity to copy the Robbie Di Matteo goal celebration, didn't they, J.K.? Oh, it was insulting. And uh, uh, I think the referee got them to hurry up and not do it, which I felt was fair enough, actually. Um, but, um, uh, yes, Grodas was um, an, an interesting um, purchase who appeared to have uh, Barota's problem of just, when in doubt, run out of the penalty area for the ball, even though you're nowhere near it, and, uh, yeah. and get chipped. So um, he wasn't my favourite goalkeeper, though I think he was a decent um shot stopper, but I still don't understand why he replaced Hitchie, who I was fond of. I have to say, I, I agree with you, Mark. I, I, he, he, he instilled more confidence in me than Kareem did, than Grodas didn't. And I think we're going to learn more about Grodas later on. Because, uh, didn't, didn't we have more play more goalkeepers that season than yeah, any other season? Than well, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they just couldn't get it. I don't know why they just didn't, you know, if they had all this money. Buy buy an exceptional goalkeeper. That was that Craig for Craig Forest. Yeah, as yeah. in the guy who conceded nine goals at Old Trafford. Craig Forest. Yeah, <laughs> fucking yeah. hell. Yeah. <laughs> God Almighty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a bit confusing, but um, yeah, the, uh, the I I didn't think they were taking the Blackpool game very seriously. I think that's what that was all about. And Spenny scored a very good goal, um, just as well. And um, uh, and one uh, bemoaning the loss of Spenny, who was such a good player. But was um, how could he get in the side and specific and also particularly when uh, another purchase was made in October there was no room for him at all. But um, such a shame because Spencer was really a top banana, great player, really loved him. 
Anyway, the next match, uh, Forrest at home, uh, and we drew 1-1 one, one with a, another great... <clears throat> Viali scored some great goals this season, and quite a lot of them. But annoyingly, another one, which no doubt would have very uh, much irritated JK, uh, nothing that pisses him off more than a last-minute equaliser. Oh, and it was, a, it was a ridiculous goal, totally undeserved. It was a deflection that just went looping over... Um, I, who was in goal that day? Uh, looping over Hitchcock's back. It was lo- looping over his head. Um... Real fans, real opinions. I'm Jason Cundy, and you're listening to the Chelsea Football Fancast. Up the Chelsea! Footballfancast.com I mean, the other interesting thing about this, for to bring it right up to date, was a certain Alfie Inger Harland was playing for Forest that day, whose greatest uh, contribution to football, uh, well, he made one, which was nearly getting killed by Roy Keane, of course, but the second one was siring the young Erland Harla, Erling Haaland, who, of course, will be signing for Chelsea before the end of this month, as we oh, all know. what have you done? Yeah, I will. Well, well. I, 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 <laughs> no, Chidge knows. ITK. I've just got to say, Jason Lee scoring a last-minute equaliser is probably karma for David Baddiel being an absolute prick to him on fantasy football. Yeah, that was, that was, his, was that, is that where he got a pineapple on his head? No, yeah, he, he that, lost it. He, he, he shaved it off, didn't he? But he, he was still he was still called Pineapple Head, wasn't he? Was, he? So. he was. He was. No, he didn't uh, have a it. pineapple on his head. He's got, He's a, pineapple got a pineapple on his head. Yeah. Poor bloke. Apparently, I mean, you know, no, no. Uh, I mean, joking aside, he was really upset about that. I remember an interview at the time saying he was really, really upset by it. Yeah, you wouldn't get away with it. I wouldn't say you wouldn't even get away with it. So you wouldn't get away with it ten years ago, but. Uh, 1996 is a bit more liberal. And there <laughs> they were, doing it on, rinsing him on TV. On the BBC, no On less. the BBC. There we go. This is what we want. Right, that's the end of uh, September. We now move into October. Uh, and still, uh, you know, thus far, our form is, you know, pretty pucker. I'm not I'm not complaining. We're currently six. We play Leicester away. Leicester, a tricky side. Uh, O'Neill's side. Got a quite a good. He got quite a decent team actually at that time. Former Chelsea player Muzzy Izzet's playing for them. Uh, Steve Steve Walsh, a real kind of, um, you know, proper proper centre half. Uh, what? Not Savage. What's the guy who played up front? The uh, the little chap who was the um, uh, a great pundit. What was his name? Claridge. Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Claridge. Yeah, he's well. He Claridge. wasn't. He wasn't playing against us that day. But anyway, we uh, we won three one. Uh, they open the scoring on 44 minutes, then Viali, Di Matteo, and then Hughes make it 3-1. And then Jonathan. I was there. I just want to say I was there. Okay. Is that it? Yeah, that's all I wanted okay. to say. <laughs> then we come crashing back down to earth <laughs> with those usual irritants, Wimbledon, uh, the Wombles. Uh, but we will get our revenge later, Marco, won't we? would but um just one point on this there's an expression was spawned that day which remains with me and several of my mates with what the effing ikoku is going on when said players scored their fourth <laughs> and 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 actually we left <laughs> you left when which point did you leave 
when Okoku scored the fourth goal. Uh, it's only only that's seventy eight minutes, mate. So you only no, just beat the rush. You know, could have been could have been much worse. Could have been half time, mate. You know, <laughs> but there we go. Yeah, F and Okoku. Who the F and Okoku? Yeah, that he scored against us a lot. The last three three weeks we've done this. Every bloody Wimbledon game, he pops up and scores. He was a real bogeyman for us, as was Robbie Earl. Yeah, um, good player, good player, Chief. Very good player, Earl. We, yeah, were, yeah. we were actually linked with him. We were linked with him for a period, weren't we, Mark? Do you remember that being? Good there was player. Very good player. Possibility we were going to buy him. I don't know where he would have played. But um, um, Minto played and he scored. He got a free kick. And I, was gonna, I still didn't get this. Who was playing where at the time in defence? I didn't get it. Seemed to be suddenly Burley was in, then Minto would play, then Myers would play, um, and then Stevie Clark was playing. Uh, I, I I couldn't work out really what system they were playing at the time, but you know, perhaps they weren't. As Spacker said the other day, perhaps they weren't playing a system at all. Perhaps they just, um, you know, they were on the pitch and they just left it up to themselves. You know, indeed. Now, uh, Mark, uh, this is of course uh, remembered. I have to say, um, and I and I. I Frank, I apologise for this, but at the time, this caused us much hilarity uh, after the first goal. Mark? Yep. Um, the first goal, like, LeBerth gets bullied out of it and he ends up with a, a golf ball golf ball size lump on his head. Yeah. Uh, so he got really bullied by Wimbledon in this game. But obviously... Later in the season, he gets his revenge, and so does the rest of Chelsea. Mm. I wonder who he headed. I think it must have been Robbie Earl, but he certainly came off second best, and he ended up wearing a headband, uh, you know, like a bandage on his head, I think, didn't he? But there you yeah. go. So um, a bit of an annoying defeat to uh, to Wimbledon, and then we go up to Bolton Wanderers um, for a Coca-Cola Cup match. And, uh, you know, I think Bolton were in the second division then. So we would have expected to win this, but sadly uh, we didn't. Scotty Minto scores a goal on two minutes, having, I think, scored uh, in the week before. Always good to see Scotty Minto play, actually. But then McGinley on 22 and then Nathan Blake on 43 both score and knock us out. And uh, the other notable thing about the game, as Jonathan was saying a minute ago, was it was dear old Johnny Spencer's last match for Chelsea. Um, You know, he would... uh, he would soon go, uh, and uh, um, I think he went to QPR, didn't we? He sold him he for did. yeah, two and a half million. Um, I, um, Mark, you you said in the notes you've uh, you did an interview with him at QPR and, and Neil Beard. Did he have much to say about his departure? He, he did. Um, yeah, he was really sad to go, and JK nailed it earlier. I think he wanted to play football. Uh, and obviously with Zola coming in as well, and he was only there briefly um, after Zola arrived. Uh, and I think the press tried to make sort of speculation of it because we asked him, and this for me was almost at the time on par with Pat Nevin going, I love Spenny. And then having spent an afternoon with him, I loved him even more. You know, he's just one of the nicest people I've ever met in football. Uh, and Neil and I leave QBR training grounds, you know, sort of saying, why did we sell him? You know, he was, he was just... Love Chelsea, you know, really bought into everything about Chelsea. And then, you know, we gave him away for two and a half million pounds. You know, we bought Paul Fern for that a couple of years earlier. And, you know, in his first eight games of QPR, he scored seven goals. But the speculation the press basically sort of tried to make of it, and he was having none of it when we spoke to him, was, you know, they asked him why he wasn't in the first team. And he said, well, you need to ask the manager. And the journalist says, well, why don't you ask the manager? And Spenny just said innocently, well, 
I haven't spoken to him for eight weeks, you know, um, and that became the story, you know, which pissed Hollett off at the time. But as Benny said, you know, Hollett didn't not speak to me for eight weeks. He just didn't speak to many people. <laughs> you know, that just was his way. You know, he'd gone from being um, a member of the first team and one of the lads to distancing himself from the first team as the manager of the team, as, as you would do. So, you know, he wasn't ignoring Spenny. That's just the way he was. He was the manager and players were different now. And the players socialised and he no longer socialised with them. But, oh, you know, if, if people got their copy of the December 1996 Chelsea Independent, you know, there's an absolutely brilliant interview with Spenny. And there's obviously the back page is his two goal. Um, there's two photos of his goal in Austria, which will obviously live long in our memory as one of the greatest goals we've ever seen in the European game, you know. Really got to see him go. Yeah, real shame. Yeah, me, me too. I, I love Johnny Spencer, and he was really good. I think, I think both him and Peacock actually were were horribly underrated for what they had given to us in the in the few seasons that they were there with us. Um, sadly, the Bolton uh, match on the twenty second of October, nineteen ninety six, will now always be remembered for something entirely different. And I remember. I mean, I I, I didn't go to the game, but. I remember waking up in the morning and then listening uh, to the radio as I as I often do. I can't probably radio four in those days if I if I know me, and waking up to the news that um, Matthew Harding and uh, um, who else was there? Tony Burridge, Ray Dean, the pilot Mick Goss, and John Baldy all died in a helicopter crash as uh, they were being taken from Bolton back down to London. Uh, and I was just rendered utterly speechless. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't know Matthew, but, you know, his connections with the club were, were well documented and well known at the time. He was kind of seen as one of us. And I was just absolutely, you know, grief stricken at the time and also thought, oh, my God, that's it. Chelsea are, are screwed because, you know, from what we were led to believe, Matthew was certainly putting a lot of money into the rebuilding and also buying these wonderful players like uh, Robbie Di Matteo and, and LeBeuf. So a very, very black and tragic day in Chelsea's history, Mark, wasn't it? Real kick in the gut. And the other the other thing about this, why I can never forget this, and not that you would as a Chelsea fan, is I missed the Bolton game um, because my wife was in labour and gave birth to our first daughter. Um, so uh, I missed the Bolton game and uh, obviously saw that we lost. And the following day, a guy called Ross Fraser, who was involved with Chelsea Independent, he rings me at about half five in the morning. You know, fortunately, I was up because, you know, my newly born daughter had just come home, hadn't been sleeping. And I'm thinking, who's ringing me at half past five in the morning? Uh, and like, Ross rings and I, I knew nothing what was going on. Uh, and he just said, I've got some really bad news for you. And I thought I said, what? I thought you were ringing me up to congratulate and being a dad. He goes, no, um, he goes, Matthew's dead. And it was just like a real sort of like punch in my guts. Like I knew Matthew. We used to drink with him. He used to go. Uh, we used to go to games with him. You know, anytime sort of played in the Midlands, we'd always meet in the same pub. I didn't just know Matthew. I met Ray Dean a number of times as well. Ray Dean, really, really lovely guy. So, you know, it wasn't just Matthew. It was Ray as well. This, this really, really, really hurt. You know, and it was really hard to take in. You know, the sort of like loss. You know, and I wasn't even thought about even Chelsea Football Club. I, I was thinking about the person and, you know, the outpouring of grief, you know, by Chelsea fans and the shrine that Stamford Bridge became was just, just incredible. And, you know, I hadn't even thought about going to the Tottenham game at that stage because obviously I'd just become a dad for the first time, folks on the family. And my wife said, you, you got to go. You knew Matthew, you just <clears> had to go. 
and just going down to Stamford Bridge and seeing the, the shirts, the flowers, the scarves, you know, if you didn't have a lump in your throat, you know, you soon would have it. It was just a really emotion, emotional occasion that day, you know. And then obviously the pint of Guinness on the pitch and everything that went with that, you know. But there's the tributes that came in, you know, from people like Richard Branson, Jimmy Hill, I remember, did a lovely tribute to Matthew, um, Tony Blair, John Major. And the interesting thing about Tony Blair, other than obviously Matthew had donated a million pounds to the Labour Party, is the helicopter that Matthew died in was the same helicopter that Tony Blair used throughout his campaign before he became Prime Minister. Uh, you just sort of think, there for the grace of, you know, that's the same helicopter, you know, Blair, Blair used. And it was just, you know, the guys would be there as well, just like a really, really sort of sad day. Uh, but even, even afterwards, you know, we had a reception in the Imperial. And I remember Mickey Greenaway, and Mickey Greenaway was worse to wear that day. And, like, everybody wanted to come to the Imperial. And obviously the governor of the Imperial had to sort of, like, restrict it to people who knew Matthew because literally every Chelsea fan knew Matthew drank in the Imperial. So it was almost like a, a place to be afterwards. So Mickey Greenaway was outside. And, and, you know, I don't deal with grown men crying, like, really well. I never have and never will. And the sight of Mickey Greenaway crying, you know, really, really got to you. You know, so he said to the governor of the pub, look, just let him in, you know, and Greenaway came in and it's just, he was just in bits, you know, because, you know, he'd met Matthew several times and it just had the impact, like the type of person Matthew was, you know, there was things in his life, he loved to drink, he loved to joke, he loved his job and he loved Chelsea Football Club, you know, and so sort of like him, you know, going out that way was just really, really sad. But there's just other things as well, like Colin Hutchinson pra praised him, you know, several times, like recent time. Colin Hutchinson's page in the program that day, I've got it in front of me. And we talked about Matthew last week being a Walter Mitty character. And that's what Colin Hutchinson called Matthew. He called him Walter. And in return, Matthew used to call Colin Hutchinson Digby Dixon. Yeah. Because <laughs> apparently, when they went up to some game in Yorkshire, uh, I think. The, the driver that took him back to the train station. It was Sheffield Wednesday that we just talked about. He was called Digby Dixon. And because Colin Hutchinson came from Yorkshire, you know, from then on, Matthew would call Colin Hutchinson Digby Dixon as well. Um, but very, 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 very sad day. And I think the other thing about um, John Baldy, um, Matthew's sort of favourite musical artist was Bob Dylan. And John Baldy was the, and I'm not a fan of Dylan, but probably people who listen to it are, you know, at that time, he was the expert in the country on Bob Dylan. Huge he? music journalist, Baldy. Yeah. Huge, yeah. huge knowledge, absolute knowledge. Um, uh, I think, was it was it Melody Maker, NME, one of the two, yeah. or perhaps even both. I mean, he just really was a top, top music writer, Baldy, at the time. Yeah. So, it, so it just wasn't, wasn't football, it wasn't Benfield Insurance. It was like the music industry as well. You know, this, you know, people lost, you know, not just Matthew, people lost loved ones, really special. And the thing I, I would always say, like, as a... Yeah, the only the only Dylan you know song I know is you know, and I'll say this line here because I think it's really appropriate tonight because there's a joyous occasion, but it's sad as well. And I'll read it out, which is, "May God bless you and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung. And may you stay forever young." That's for you, Matthew. Absolutely, that's a. A lovely tribute, Mark. Thank you. I mean, J.K. Martin, Marco, J.K. I mean, what, 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 you know? As I said, I woke up and found out on the radio. I mean, what was your reaction when you heard? 
Well, I, I it was the awfulness of hearing on the news that um, uh, a helicopter had gone down and it was thought that there were members of uh, um, the Chelsea board involved in it. And you had no idea what it was going to be. So you waited for the next bulletin half an hour later saying um, uh, they still don't know who was on board, but the helicopter um, has crashed. Um, we don't know whether any survivors. So I was listening. Um, I can't remember that would have been on Radio 5, I presume. It, was Radio 5 in existence then? I can't remember. I can't remember. Yeah. But it, it just every half hour I was listening to see who this was, particular from the board. And then they said it was Matthew Harding's helicopter. And and I was then thinking, are there going to be any survivors? Is this what's happened? Have they found anybody? And they, and so this was like this was just, uh, you know, constant. All I was doing was just listening to the radio for these for these bulletins. And then they said it was Matthew Harding's and they didn't know for any survivors. And I thought, oh, come on, let's find out if there are any survivors. Come on. And then they said there are no survivors. And that was about two in the morning. And I've been listening all this time. And then it was just it was oh my goodness it took over from the result you know i've been upset by the result i don't understand understand why we've lost to bolton um who were as you say were in the division below us but it was it completely overcame it and then actually on the day itself i got there really early in fact i went during the um the the day before just to try and look at the tributes and uh and then i went i went on the day about an hour and a half beforehand and just wandered around looking at the the fabulous tributes to him the shirts all the number of shirts it was a uh, it was just, uh, it, it was unbelievably sad, but you could, the love for him as a, as a, um, uh, as a figurehead for everything, for the regeneration of the club that was taking place was absolutely phenomenal. And I have to say on the day itself, the one thing that, 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 that why I've, I've not been a great Tottenham hater uh, ever, because I'm, I'm a Leeds hater as is traditional, was the, the, the brilliant way that they observed the minute silence, all the Tottenham fans, mm. the, kudos hats off to them it was it was remarkable on the day and everybody was absolutely focused and tuned in to the the awfulness and the uh, uh, of his death so it was it was um, it was a very very emotional game i mean it's interesting isn't it because <clears throat> you know uh, but i think particularly mentioning what happened with spurs when when you you know they were impeccably behaved it has to be said impeccable. absolutely and it's the it's probably the most silent i've ever heard a minute silence ever and actually, I, you know, as it happens, you know, many years later, of course, when Leicester's owner similarly died in a helicopter crash, I happened to be on air on Love Sport Radio doing the, uh, I think it was the breakfast show or something like that, maybe the afternoon show. So it was, the news was coming in and they were like, because I, I had a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a loose cannon on the show and saying, you know, rather, shall we say, controversial things. And the producer was really worried that I might like not be uh, somber enough and and deal with it. And I said, basically, fuck off, mate. I said, I know exactly what this is like as a supporter because we went through that when Matthew died, um, and uh, you know, and it and it did. It brought it all back that day. And then having to talk about it all day, it was quite something. I mean, Marco, what what are your memories of that time? I think just really to underline the point JK made there. And, and I think, you know, in an era when it, it sort of, it went from a minute's silence to a minute's applause because people weren't observing a minute's silence. There'd always be somebody at a game who'd shout something and then somebody would shout, shut up, and then, and then it would all kick off. Um, but at that game, you know, it, it just kind of, 
brought home the fact that, you know, for for one minute, rivalries were put to one side. And it's fair to say that, you know, at that time, um, th there was no kind of uh, bar on, you know, the, the, the sort of all the anti-Semitic stuff that, that was going on, was, was going on. And there really was no love lost between Chelsea and Spurs supporters. Um, and, and it was just, it was Im immaculate um, and very, very moving. And, and I don't really think, um, you know, I think the, the, the Peter Osgood memorial thing at Stamford Bridge was a, a very moving occasion, but very different. Um, also against Spurs, of course. Well, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just... Uh, yeah, it really is one of those moments. And it deserved it as well. You know, it deserved that level of respect. Um, and again, you know, this was kind of in an era before social media. Um, so, you know, there was no there was no kind of truce on social media. The, you know, it was just like football supporters um, paying their respects to... Somebody who loved the game, who, who, you know, just really was a part of the fabric and culture of football uh, and a football fan first and, you know, businessman second when it came to Chelsea, uh, you know, as far as the perception went. Yeah, absolutely. Martin? So my, my, my memory is about 15 years later and I'm working in, in a Lloyd's insurance broker. So I'm working alongside people who would have known Matthew professionally and I'm just you know, getting a cup of tea or a coffee or something in mid-morning, and I read something about... So basically, all Lloyd's brokers would play a football tournament amongst themselves, and I've had a look at this because our team was doing quite well, probably because I wasn't playing. <laughs> um, but um, they were competing for a trophy called the Matthew Harding Shield, which had been named in his honour, and it explained that he had sponsored the Lloyds of London football team. So they do something like a summer tour for football, possibly cricket as well. And he put up the money for that, for the younger lads to do that as part of their, you know, life experience really. So, you know, it just shows his, you know, his largesse and his generosity of spirit wasn't just related to Chelsea Football Club. He just seemed to be that type of person. I think people recognise that regardless of whatever team you support. And then 25 years to the day um, when we beat Man United at 4-0 and the flag went around, around with Matthew's name on it. I didn't twig this at the time, but his business partner was a guy named Graham Chilton. And I think he was the godfather to one of his kids. And he was at the, who is now a professional racing driver, which has just amused me. I think one of them, um, one of them was in Formula One, the other did like touring cars. And he just said, he tweeted being at the bridge and saying, you know, mem in memory of my god godfather and never forgotten and all this stuff. Also, as a slightly lighter A-side, the business he built up got sold to Aon. And then Aon went on to sponsor Manchester United. And I just had this, you know, if Matthew had been around, would he have been a little bit mischievous on the sponsorship deal? And, you know, now you can't do that. <laughs> Try and veto the decision. Yeah, interesting stuff. Thanks, Martin. Um, as everybody's been saying, the next match was at home against Spurs. Uh, and uh, on the pitch, uh, you know, the right result 
certainly uh, happened. Uh, Rude Hullet, who's uh, now back in the side, having recovered from the injury inflicted upon him by a certain individual pre-season. Uh, he scored on 27 minutes. Armstrong scored on 41. Uh, Rodders. Dreadful Hitchcock error, I'm afraid. Uh, yes, it was, wasn't it, JK? Yes. It was indeed. Um, yeah. Bounces over the place. Bounces up and he palms it in. It was... Uh... They were a bit prone to this kind of madness from a goalkeeping point of view. I, I, I didn't get it once again. I'll keep saying this. Why didn't they buy somebody of, of as, as befitting to the other purchases? I know. It's bizarre, isn't it? But anyway, um, yeah, so uh, Rodgers scored a penalty on 52 minutes and uh, Robbie DiMatteo uh, cleaned up shop uh, on 80 minutes. Uh and as the boys were saying, you know, there were black armbands with all the players. A wreath was laid on the pitch in the centre circle. And uh, I think the most uh, moving and fitting tribute was the fact that a pint of Guinness was placed on uh, Matthew Harding's seat in the soon-to-be-named uh, Matthew Harding stand. It was still the North stand, I think, at the time. And, of course, as the boys were saying, and I remember, I mean, I used to drink in the Imperial pub uh, going way back and for years and years and years they used to have a photograph of Matthew uh, in the bar there uh, in tribute to him because he would always drink in the uh, in the Imperial and, and he loved the pint of Guinness so there we go I mean just to wrap up the whole Matthew thing um, you know Dennis Wise said after the match um, that we've just got to go on and win something for him now and make his dream come true and, and Rudy said before Matthew died I was at Chelsea now I'm part of Chelsea. So it was a really, in a, in a way, a very seminal thing that had happened to the club. And I suppose, in a sense, it brought everybody together even more so than they were before. And I suppose if, if you want any evidence of that, I would argue that our best performance of the season came in the next match when we, uh, when we went up to uh, Man United, who, of course, you know, were perennial uh, double winners and Premier League winners at the time under Fergie. Uh, but we had a decent record against United, but this was a brilliant, brilliant day, an absolutely brilliant day. Uh, Dubes put us 1-0 uh, up on uh, 31 minutes, and then Luca Vialli scored on 61, one of his most fondly remembered goals, where he was put through, he just did this brilliant, brilliant run, his ball over the top, acres of space, uh, running uh, towards Peter Schmeichel, and he kind of like dummies whilst running, gives him the eyes and slots it, through his legs uh, to make it 2-0. Uh, Beckham pull, pulls one... Oh, sorry, not Beckham. Uh, David David May pulls one back on 18... <laughs> hell of a difference between David Beckham no, and David May. No, it's David May, according to Bounder Fridale. They, uh, no, it was David May on 81 minutes, according to Bounder Fridale. According to the video, it's Poborski. Well, it's I, I believe Bounder Friday. Never well, I ever believe my eyes. Never Chief. ever 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 argue with Bounder Friday. I'm going to be arguing with you, Chief. It was it was Poborski. Can I just say that Dubes, um, the, another iconic picture here. This was his fist pumping picture that um, after he'd scored the header. Fantastic. He played played very well in. That's one of the pictures. iconic pictures you were talking about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can I just say for a second? I'm, I'm similarly with Viali. My memories of Viali will always be put through and chasing up the ball like a mad thing. And you knew it was going to, chances of him scoring, it was always about 90% that he'd score. Also, the other thing is any volley, any volley. So the ball was was lumped through to him by LeBeuf and it, he would just, it, it, very Hughes-like as well, very similar this way, their ability to volley and the power and the accuracy was absolutely joyous. You just knew if the ball was 
it was over somebody's head in the penalty area. Viali, one touch, bap. He was lethal, the... wasn't he? Bap. But it's that, once again, our current forwards could learn a bit. It's, there's the goal. Shoot. Yeah. It's but it was, this, it's his ooh, movement. Touch, I mean, touch, you know, you know. One of the yeah. reasons why Viali is still one of my favourite all-time Chelsea strikers is that I don't, I still, to this day, don't think I've seen a striker with better movement than Viali. He was never still and his runs were just brilliant. You know, that he was such an intelligent footballer over and above the fact that, as you said, um, you know, he basically did never hung about. I mean, he was so quick to shoot. You he, know. He'd, he'd never go from everywhere and anywhere, but not in a, not in a kind of Mark Steen miles over the bar. Really accurate. Oh, he's accurate. Yeah. Absolutely oh, phenomenal. He was phenomenal. Yeah. Marco. I was just going to say, when the ball hits the back of the United <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and do you know what? I mean, funnily enough, I, I wrote a piece on Luca around the European Championships time, and it was a bit of a, a love letter to him, really. And I, I actually quoted the uh, the Viali song and I and I mean I'm not gonna I, I will tease it but I'm not gonna tell you what they are but I think this is one of the best seasons for really brilliant original songs and the you know when the ball hits the back of the United or Old Trafford net it's Viali is one of them but there were many others Mark a uh, couple of things um, I think Crespo is probably the only other person I could think of with the movement of Viali agreed and yeah and then obviously the West Ham version was the Bobby Zamora version <laughs> go on. Yeah, <laughs> I know what it is. <laughs> when the ball hits the ball back hits of the sea in Rose Ed. <laughs> That's the one. So a brilliant, brilliant result. And I, I, fondly remembered by everybody who was lucky enough to be there. But I think that that song, uh, you know, absolutely epitomises it. Uh, and even better. I mean, this was on um, the date of this was the 2nd of November. And then arguably... One of the best things that ever happened to Chelsea Football Club happened uh, six days later, on the 8th of November 1996, when a certain genius called Gianfranco Zola signed uh, for Chelsea from Parma for £4.5 million. Um, Marco, uh, you know, as our resident half-Italian, you've now got three superb Italians in the side, but... You must have heard about, I mean, you know, he was a superstar already, I think. I mean, you know, if you knew your Italian football, you knew Zola. He'd been effectively the understudy to uh, Maradona, hadn't he, at Napoli. So what did you think that we'd signed him? I just thought he was brilliant. I mean, you just couldn't believe it. And, and the fact that he, at the time, the time of the season when he was coming as well. So, um, you know, you, when you need a player... When you're getting a world-class player at that time of the, of the year, um, you know it doesn't happen in the modern game now. Uh, so, not only was it brilliant we were getting Zola, but it, it was coming at a time that um, was going to reap div reap dividends for, for for Chelsea. Indeed. Uh, anybody else want to opine about their absolute delight that Zola had signed for us, Mark? I just love the quote he made when he actually signed for Chelsea. And you think what follows on, you know, I have come to England to be successful and I want to play a big part in Chelsea's success. I think he did a good job at that. 
Well, he did indeed. Uh, I love that T-shirt that was doing the rounds um, a few years back now, but it was it was it was quite interesting because it had a I'm sure it had a an England flag on it, and a great a great thing happened for English football in 1966. Gianfranco Zola was born. Yeah, it's a pastiche. It's a pastiche of the yeah. similar one for Cantona. It, it was is, all over the billboards, isn't it? It was brilliant. Um, so there you go. Franco joins. Uh, he makes his debut away at uh, Rovers, which ends up being one all. I, although I seem to remember he, he nearly scored, but uh, fifty six minutes. Gallic scored. Petrescu on eighty two, and then Newcastle at home. Uh, another one all draw. Uh, Viali again. Uh, Shearer scores on forty one minutes. Batty was sent off uh, on, on fifty two minutes. Um, Zola did a, a, a kind of a snap volley from about 30 yards out that literally went over the bar by a millimetre. Had it gone in, it would have been a spectacular goal. Um, now, there is some conjecture, Mark, in the notes about whether it was a Viali goal, because basically Zola crossed it in from a free kick on the left, didn't he? And then Viali goes towards it and appears to, to glance off his head and go into the net. And the I can't remember who the commentator was, but they were very ecstatic about what a brilliant Italian made in Italy goal it was. But you know what? You say you don't think that Viali touched it and it should have been Zola's goal. But actually, it was Paborski. No, sorry. Actually, um, it, <laughs> actually <laughs> I don't know. I've watched it back and I, I think you might be right, mate. It's well, why, why I remember it? Because uh, obviously it's his home debut. And the other thing we should have said about, you know, if you knew Zola... He was a dead ball specialist. He was the dead ball specialist in Italian football. So I'm sitting in the West Stand and the bookies in the West Stand have got Zola at seven to one for first goal. And the amount of people that put in a tenner on Gianfranco Zola for first goal, you know, so I think it was a lot of disappointed people because when that goal went in, there was a lot of happy people around me who loved to have a bet at the football. And I thought they just won 70 quid. Uh, and they couldn't believe it when Giardi claimed the goal. Now I've watched it many times since. I'm still not sure. I, I I'm not. Yeah, Viardi claims it, and he says he got a. Well, he can't. He, he can't get hair to it because he didn't have any hair on his head. Yeah, but he claimed he got a touch to it. But every time I've watched it, I'm. I'm I still think Zola scored it. Whoever priced that seven to one probably got the tin tack on Monday morning. Fucking hell, that's a ridiculous price. Right, well, that's why people put their tenors on Martin. I'd have, done, I'd have done more than a tenner. I'd have, I'd have been sticking scores on that. Jesus. No, no, he, no, he, he kept his. He probably kept his job because obviously they didn't have to pay out. Yeah, but, yeah, but don't want him pricing something up like well, that again. The next game, yeah, the, odds, stick- the odds fell. The next game, yeah. Alan Shearer four to one. Fucking hell. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Mark, around that time, um, you said that in, in the Sunday People there was an interview, or, or, or I don't know what it was, but apparently Viali was ha- unhappy and homesick. Yeah, it, it was the first sort of signs of like, you know, a bit of misbehaviour by the press, you know, whoever you know, thought they'd do such a thing. So they ran a story that Viali was unhappy and homesick and was wanting to return to Italy because although he'd been there and we'd signed him in May, he was still staying in a hotel near the ground. Uh, and he hadn't yet been resettled into a home. You know, they were still looking for somewhere to live. Hmm. Well, as we know, this was a story, in a sense, that would run and run for the rest of the season. Um, I'll, we'll get to that, obviously, as, as and when. Now, in December, uh, we lose 2-0 to Leeds up there. Dean and Rush scored. Um, and then we had Everton at home. And, you know, if this is remembered for anything, it should be remembered for an absolutely amazing uh, Gianfranco Zola free kick on 12 minutes uh, you know classic Zola just puts it right in the top corner 
And as we know, we'd see a lot more of that as the years go by. Uh, we then lose 3-0 to Sunderland, uh, courtesy of a Dube's own goal on 30. Bald and Russell got the other two. And then we then we play West Ham at home and we win 3-1. And, 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 and you know, Husey put us uh, 1-0 up on six minutes. Franco again on 10. And then uh, Porfirio gets one back for West Ham on 11. And then Husey gets the uh, third on 35. A couple of interesting things about this. The first, really, this is the first pairing of uh, Mark Hughes and Franco Zola, and they clearly immediately hit it off. Uh, and that kind of goes back into what Mark was saying about Viali. You get this kind of narrative running through the rest of the season about either Hughes plays or Viali plays, and Viali tends to play less than Hughes, and so on and so forth. The other thing is, it was Neil Clement's debut, which I didn't realise. But if this match is remembered for anything at all, uh, and thankfully, it was also um, it was also uh, kind of immortalised in song. But um, it was Zola's uh, Zola's goal, where he basically he just had Julian Dix twisting and turning, and, and no idea what was going on and where he was. And I mean, you know, Dix never looked very bright to me, but he looked all of his, you know, fourteen stones of stupidity in that moment, and. Uh, and I mean, you know, as I said, there were, there were so many great songs that came about this year. And I remember when I first went back in the early noughties, all of my mates were still singing these songs to this day. And I'm sure a lot of them made the uh, the fan cast in the early days. But this is a particular favourite. If you want to know about taking the piss, go to Upton Park and ask Julian Dix about Zola. La, 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 Zola. And there's many verses as well, but it's a brilliant song. Who remembers that? Marco, of course, is the chronicler of Chelsea songs, courtesy of his book, uh, Carefree. Did that make the cut? I think I think it does. I also remember there was, um, I'm pretty certain, or it might not have been, but there, there was a, a bit written in in, an, in the, one of the national uh, dailies um, that, that Zola had dicks on toast. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> Oh dear! That's why I always wanted Julian Dix to become a football manager. So when the fans started protesting, they were shouting "Dix out." Well, I tell you what: if I'd have been writing the headlines, and this is probably why I don't, I'd have been saying Zola makes a cock out of Dix. Frankie Frankie boy played in that game, didn't he? Um, he came on as a sub. Yeah, you know what? I was going to say I I noticed it in the other in the return match uh, because you see him when they score a goal. But uh, I don't. I didn't spot him. But I can. I can. I don't know where. Where's it gone? I'm kind of whizzing down uh, Bounder uh, Bounder Friardale. He broke his leg. Did he break his leg that season? Uh, mate. Uh, yeah, he came on as a sub for Ian Bishop on 83 minutes. So there well done. Go. Good spot, Marco. Mark. Scott Cannon playing. What's that? Scott, Scott Cannon. What about what about Scott Cannon? <laughs> no, he, I can confirm that Scott Cannon wasn't playing. J.K. Um, Hughes's goal was um, one of those great climbing headers, wasn't it? Yeah, that he just. How did he leap that high? I don't know. Salmon-like, quite phenomenal. Yeah. And them getting the power into it and getting it right to the He's, corner. He was like three foot above. I mean, yeah. he scored several like that this season. He did. And he I remember did. when we watched the review, but I was like, how does he do that? Yeah, right. rem- remarkable, remarkable player. And can something else about it. I think this was the first time that we saw the Basilica computer ads 
on that yeah. board behind the goal. Which the, pa- then the palace ads, as I used to yeah. call them. What do you call them? The what? The, the palace what? ads. But they looked like because yeah. they were palace colours, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. And but it was for Basilica, which was yeah. something with computers. I had no idea ever what it was, but it uh, it was there um, just behind the goal. It was on the awning in front of the stand while they were doing the building. So it was there for the rest of the season. It was. Now, as the as the uh, the well known atheist amongst us, J.K., uh, how moist did Franco's goal get you? Um, uh, well, it was a wonderful goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was gushing. Yeah. Good. Good. Just yeah. checking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I just used to go. I, I, watching, I just used to go. I was in the middle tier. Just used to go. Ah, 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 That was my my kind of default. Was constantly oh, like look, oh, oh, wow, ah. Oh. And uh, those are the noises I made at the time. I mean, the the interesting thing is, I mean, you know, Franco joins as we said on on the eighth of uh, November, and then immediately makes his debut in the next game in Rovers, but. You know, the impact he made in the Rovers, Newcastle, not so much the Leeds game, the Everton game, not so much the Sunderland game, the West Ham game, the next uh, two games, the last two games of the year, where we, we beat Villa 2-0 away, he scores both goals. Wednesday at home, it's a two-all draw, he scores the first goal. I mean, the impact that he made was just immediate. And I think, you know, when we when we saw what he could do, just the skill he had, you just thought, hello, we really have bought ourselves a world-class player. And it, and it did feel like he was like the final piece in the jigsaw, didn't it, Marco? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, I think the, the timing of his signing was was um, was extraordinary, really, in, in the context of the modern game and the impact that he had kind of, you know, before the what would be now the traditional January transfer window Open. So he'd already sort of acclimatised himself to the, the rigours of the Premier League in, you know, in, in the, you know, in, in, in what was heading into winter, etc. Um, he's just, he's a natural yeah. for the Premier League. He was indeed. Uh, now, just to dot the I's and cross the T's, um, on the 23rd of December and the 30th of December, Gavin Peacock goes to QPR like Spenny did. Uh, for 800 grand and uh, Terry Phelan goes to Everton for 850 mark uh, and also Jakob Thielberg has to retire um, from the game due to injury and then he'd be trained to become a physiotherapist but the club keep him on because he then appears later in the season in the video they make for the cup final but yeah he actually retired from injury and never played for Chelsea again mm, shame JK um, this is an interesting period because um commentators were still uh, pronouncing because more foreigners had come in were still anglicizing all the um the uh foreign pronunciations so hullet was gullet for a long period because they hadn't worked out that in actual fact it wasn't pronounced that way and the same way the poor man played for villa ekiog who was some it was a complete fabrication because his actual name was yago uh, as in um uh, Iago from Shakespeare, Nigerian name. So Hugo Ekiog was just some bloke looking at the at the at the, the letters and making the name up. And but slowly but surely, we're we're getting more into a world of uh, cosmopolitan appreciation that you actually t- attempted to pronounce the names the way they were spoken on the continent, the way they really were, as opposed to these dreadful anglicising bollocks. <laughs> 
you almost sound like Digby Jones, mate. But this time, <laughs> this time with a with good cause, I have to say, Martin, and then Mark. I just want to very quickly add to JK's point. The only person who ever pronounced Mark Kinsella's name properly was Jonathan Pierce. Ah, is that because he's got Irish roots? I don't know. I think he might have just done some fucking research. Yeah. <laughs> Although, admit it, it's quite because Mark Kinsella's daughter has won an Olympic medal this past week. And the test to find out whether she was GB or on is to ask her to pronounce her surname. And if she says Kinsella, yeah, you can have her. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Uh, Mark? JK is absolutely right. If you remember the episode of Only Fools and Horses with the Jolly Boys outing down to Margate, when Rodney gets arrested by the police, uh, Rodney incorrectly, when he kicks the ball and knocks a policeman's head off, uh, refers to Rude Hullet as Rude Gullet. Appalling. Mr. Trotter was pronouncing it wrong. You One point, um, uh, Terry Phelan, who, uh, who didn't really play, did he, this season? And there wasn't a place for him, which I didn't understand once again, because uh, we had Myers and we had Minto. But uh, I really like Phelan as a player, and that's a real shame. I think he was just a, um, a victim of the the purchases. It, he couldn't do much about it. He didn't get any game time, so he was sold. I think probably sold by what Bates' involvement in this. They were very keen to balance the books at this time as well. So You know what? It's really interesting. I, w- I was thinking when I was putting all this together at the weekend, um, you know, and, and, and obviously both Spenny and, and Peacock go, and like, like we said earlier on, and Terry Phelan, of course, but like we said earlier on with, with Spencer, you know, I, you know, I think I think Peacock and Spencer have been hugely underrated yep. for their for their time at the club. I mean, particularly Peacock, who was captain for a while, wasn't he, a couple of seasons back. And they were great for us, you know. They weren't stellar, but they did a really, really good job. And of course, as JK was saying, you know, they've been they've been pushed out by these extravagant and extraordinary purchases that we we make. We Chelsea just go up a very different level this year you know we've got this mixture of experience and young players coming through because you know um you know there are still i mean stevie clark still there dubes is playing craig burley's playing a lot um you know so it's not like it's complete shutout with paul hughes of course paul hughes yeah and many others make their debut this season but you know we're buying we're buying now real quality and 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 we still we saw it last year petrescu turns up then you've got leberf you've got uh Viali and now Zola, Di Matteo, of course. Of course. Dennis, Dennis Wise still playing out of his skin. Still got Wisey. But I think the point is it really occurred to me this weekend, you know, particularly with all this talk now about, um, you know, a lot of our youth players, a lot of our youngsters deciding not to sign contracts and being sold. I mean, Liveramento, uh, I think, today, and the chap whose name I can never pronounce at uh, going to Brentford, Mark Gahey, of course. And, and this is the reality, isn't it? I mean, I'm just trying to remember... I, I don't I I can't remember what I thought at the time, but it'd be interesting to see if any of you lot can remember at the time. Did you have the hump that these uh, you know, English born, if you like, players were getting, you know, longed off, or did you think, well, I don't really care because actually it's Chelsea I care about and I get to watch the likes of Viali and Di Matteo and Leberf now? I mean, Marco, do you remember what you thought at the time? I think at that time, um, I still didn't really view football as a squad game, even though there were kind of squad numbers that, you know, went up to whatever they went up to. It was it was sort of very much, you know, that's that's the starting eleven bar injuries. 
um, might get the odd tactical change. Um, so, and obviously there was no kind of opinion being shared or agendas being pushed on social media, which didn't exist. So it was just really, you know, I just wanted the best players to be playing for Chelsea at, at a given time. And that, was, and that to me was, you know, who, who made the first 11, you know, and I thought, I mean, obviously an element of bias sort of bringing in um, the, the, the Italians, but you could kind of see um, from, you know, when Hoddle came in and um, put his sort of template and style of play into that, that there was going to be an international flavour to it if it was going to, you know, be carried off. And then, you know, it was kind of just uh, the, 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 the chain of events that followed with, with Hulli and then um, Viali, Di Matteo and Zola. And, and yeah, you know, that kind of progressed up to that Southampton away game, um, you know, a couple of seasons later or whenever it was when we fielded the team for the first time without any English players in the starting eleven, So it, it, I didn't really feel that strongly about it. You know, I endorsed the comments about um, Peacock and Spenny. Although, I mean, obviously it's Scottish, but, you know, like those players leaving, um, it wasn't the end of the world. And I didn't sort of think it was... Uh, a tragedy and, and I think we'd kind of got to that point where um, there was still sort of one, you know, homegrown players coming through, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, there were a few players making it through from from the youth ranks. So it, it was all fine with me. I, I just didn't, I did not overthink football then in in the way that people overthink it today. Yeah, I think the, the 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 expression expected goals ratio. <laughs> people would have been punched if they <laughs> stuff like mate, that. mate. They should be punched now, as you well know. <laughs> but I, I think you you summed it up beautifully there, Marco. It just wasn't on our radar then, was it? And it was, I mean, you know, when you when you understand what we had been through and not winning any trophies for so long, and then suddenly you've got world class players playing for you. It was a very easy decision to make. I love Peacock and I love Spencer, but would you rather have uh, Zola and Viali? It's not really a very difficult question to answer, is it? Um, right, um, we're going to have a, a break now. Um, but before we do, uh, just remember, if you like what we do, you can become a Chelsea Fancast patron and help us cover the costs of all the shows we do and uh, help us to keep doing the shows that we do. Uh, it's very, very simple. Uh, you just go to patreon.com forward slash Chelsea Fancast. I mean, it's... You know, there's no pressure, absolutely none, as little or as much as you want, or none at all. I will love you all, whatever you do, um, but a little monthly payment helps uh, enormously, actually. And uh, apart from all that, if you do sign up to Patreon, you immediately uh, get, uh, uh, you know, enrolled into our Discord group, which is great fun on match days with a number of people that are, are there. Bit of an antidote to Twitter. And, of course, you also get, if you want one, um, a Kerry Dixon mini banner, a replica of the one that hangs in the Matthew Harding stand. So there you go. So that's the end of part one. We will be back for part two soon. Mm -hmm.